Hello to all of our listeners. This is David speaking on behalf of the Ubuntu podcast with a quick disclaimer, sending our love, thoughts and prayers to everyone impacted by the coronavirus. And we want to let you all know that this episode was taped before the major suspensions, namely with the NBA and NCAA. And we want to ensure you that our conversation that's taking place today is with love, thoughtfulness and great introspection into these institutions, but also want to hold respect honor and integrity towards the many lives that have been altered as it relates to the suspensions due to the coronavirus. Thank you all. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to the Ubuntu podcast. Hey, 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 everybody. Thank you for tuning in to the Ubuntu podcast this time around for our third episode. <laughs> yes, let's get it. So I'm here with my two incredibly talented and brilliant co-hosts and friends. Hey, my name is Dow. What's good, y'all? How's it going, everyone? This is Hanok. Happy to be here again. Yes, yes. And we are also stoked. Again, I am David. Um, we're happy to be here. We're happy to be back with our fam. That's you all in the incredible month of March. Wow. Hallelujah. How are you guys feeling about being in March right now? It's a great month. It's Women's History Month, you know? Exactly. Yep. Celebrate feeling your great. mothers, your sisters. Yeah, we're going to celebrate all the wonderful women in our life this month. Um, there's a special episode dedicated to Women's History Month where we will be featuring some incredible women on our podcast um, because we recognize we got a lot of testosterone up here and uh, we're going to get, you know, <laughs> we're going to get a great balance soon um, and really begin to dive into some issues around surrounding gender and identity as it relates to the diaspora so stay tuned for that there is a special episode kicking that off at the end of march but right now we want to just recap on february right february was a great month for us we launched our first couple of episodes and um we got to talk about a lot of funny and thoughtful black history stuff right but in march march as we said it's women's history month but it also starts the beginning of spring Yay. My second. Okay, no. I was going to say my second favorite season. My first favorite season is fall and then it's summer. So whatever. But spring is a <laughs> spring is a great time for many obvious reasons. Um, And one of them you can add to your list is more episodes of the Ubuntu podcast. <laughs> so one of the things that March also brings out is some serious basketball lovers. Right. And um, for any of you that do know what I'm talking about, you'll know I am talking about March Madness, right? And so I'm not the biggest sports fan personally, but in honor of all the really interesting, thought-provoking, and let's be real, controversial topics um, and themes surrounding Black and African athletes and professional games, we're going to talk to you this week about sports. Yeah? Mm. All right. And before some of our viewers get upset, <laughs> don't worry. We're not going to be going over game highlights or discussing who's better than who because I really am not equipped to even do that. I promise. <laughs> but in more Ubuntu fashion, we want to dissect the institution of professional sports as a whole and our people's, the diaspora's relationship to it. And through that, we really want to ask some important and let's be honest, some really challenging questions about our allegiance and our loyalty to professional sports. Um, And we want to 
we want to understand like what are the true pros and cons of professional sports in our communities around the world. And when we think about that diaspora around the world, our sports, professional sports, we'll say a tool for unity, division, exploitation, empowerment, or something else altogether. But before we get in too deep, <laughs> I'm happy to be kicking it off this episode to Dow for y'all know it, our one and only Africa in the news. Hey, y'all, thank you. Thank you for that great, great introduction. Yeah, Dow, it's all yours. Take it away. Ah, wow. Uh, so for this week, Africa in the news, I just wanted to go over some great topics that are coming out of the continent. And this week, we're going to talk about the end of Ebola in Africa. Thank goodness, right? Uh, this is a disease that has been, I would say, terrorizing Africa for the last you know, half a decade or so since we were in high school, most of us here. So Ebola, the last case of Ebola was just eradicated in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, as you could remember, uh, last year, Democratic Republic of Congo was just going through an epidemic of its own. And it was just an Ebola epidemic where it was just killing hundreds of people. Uh, thousands were hospitalized. Uh, it was a huge, a huge, a huge problem. Government did not know how to deal with it. Uh, international organizations such as, you know, the World Health Organization had to get involved. African Union, uh, just to combat Ebola so it does not, it does not turn into another epidemic. It, into a, a wider continental epidemic that happened with Ebola in 2012. And so this was really, it was really, really, really a great, a great news to see, right? Uh, because we are also on the, we're, we, we are in the midst of another epidemic happening right now with the coronavirus. And so coronavirus right now, uh, where we see just the panicking, I think that's just happening around the globe just because we saw what kind of happened with Ebola and just the destruction it brought, particularly to African countries, West African countries, Sierra Leone and Liberia, uh, where it shut down these countries for months uh, just because they didn't have the resources to deal with it medically or economically. Uh, and so just the, the poor and the most vulnerable just suffered the most, the most consequences of this disease. And so to connect it back to coronavirus now in with the coronavirus in Africa is that only say three cases that have been reported on the continent. And so, uh, but these cases are individuals that left Africa and then came back to Africa. In Egypt, for an example, it was an Italian, an Italian individual that's traveling to Egypt that brought the coronavirus. In Nigeria, it was two couples that were in Italy and then they returned back to Nigeria that have been affected with the coronavirus. In, uh, in Senegal, it, it's a French national that, that was traveling back to, back to Senegal that brought the coronavirus. And then Algeria, they just posted it was this week. And so it was another French national as well. And so with the coronavirus so far, we haven't seen uh, the epidemic starting in Africa, but it's individual nationals that are bringing it to Africa who are traveling from these regions where uh, the coronavirus has been uh, has been reported in uh, in huge numbers. And so one thing I want to talk about uh, about the coronavirus in Africa is how do we ensure we protect Africa from another epidemic because we saw Ebola on its height and just the consequences and the absolute destruction that it brought to Africa. And another case we I wanted to talk about, we know when, when Ebola hit Africa, the response was very slow. You know, it, it was really, really slow. It's almost people didn't care until, until it killed hundreds, if not thousands of people. It was just the world was so slow to react. And, but with the coronavirus now, the world is not slow with its reaction. It's, uh, it's very proactive and it's doing the best it can to combat it. But we didn't see that for Ebola. 
why is that? Why was the response to Ebola slow compared to the response of the coronavirus? It, it, does it just shows just this, just these uh, pervasive you know biases and prejudices people hold toward African and African people? Uh, and do Black lives matter? You know. Uh, do black bodies matter when we are going through an epidemic? You know, it was seen as the African disease. It's not, you know, it's shut down the borders, you know, it's travel restriction. We're not going into West Africa it was completely shut down. And so flights were not going to West Africa completely. But that was after the slow reaction happened. So it was just this backlash of, well, we don't know what it is because it's coming from Africa. Thus, we're not going to do anything about it. We're just going to leave the Africans deal with it. And so with that, y'all, uh, I wanted to give a quote from the World Health Organization director, uh, Tedros Adhanom. Here's a quote. Uh, Globally, uh, women make up 70% of the global health force, but only hold 25% of senior positions. Uh, talks about the importance of this being, you know, uh, Women's History Month. Uh, and so he talks about uh, how World Health Organization is committed to promoting general equality, uh, especially for women who are in the health force. Who, do, who have done such great jobs, such as we've seen in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, eradicate the disease, uh, the epidemic uh, of Ebola. Uh, that was purely done, 80% of the workforce were women in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Uh, and so he talks about how women can play a role in combating uh, the coronavirus right now uh, and how, how, we see, how we see the disease is just uh, creating fear and panic around the globe. But women, on the other hand, are just calm and hitting it head on. And so with that, I just wanted to say this is uh, this is it for African the News. And thank you. Thanks so much, Dal. That was a really good. Um, that was a great African the News section. Happy to hear that we are one step closer to making sure that Africa is completely healthy. So that's really awesome. Thank you for that wonderful update. As always, for our listeners, you can hear um, you can learn more about the topics that you hear um, by checking out the links in our descriptions for each episode. Africa and the News is our very um, specific way. You know, we educate ourselves on what's happening on the continent and with African people all over the world. And so let's get into it. Right. Let's talk about sports. OK. And so I will start this by saying, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that black and African communities all around the world, um, whether in the continent or part of the diaspora, we dominate the world of sports. OK. Um, for those who are a part of the U.S. and like follow U.S. sports, that's also like that's definitely a thing. But for those who um, might not know that that's really the case globally. And so there's been a long history of black and African athletes, whether it be the Olympics, um, the World Cup, um, the NBA, the NFL, uh, multiple other regional leagues in different parts of the world. Like there's been strong history of black and African athletes taking place and um really showing up and having a presence in institutional sports. And I think with such a long history embedded in that are like really serious questions and certain realities and things that have become normalized um, that we should really talk about, you know, as it relates to gender, masculinity, as it relates to the African diaspora concerning and sports athletes concerning upward mobility, poverty, you know, concerning tropes about natural predispositions and, you know, um, biological athleticism. Those are some real conversations that we're going to have and that need to be had uh, and that have been had for for decades. I think uh, given that we're surrounded by so much happening in March, 
um, with basketball. Um, Hanaka is going to take us a little bit deeper into our first topic, where we're going to talk about none other than the NCAA. So, Hanak, this is all you. Take us away. Give us that knowledge. Thanks so much, David, for that intro. So let's talk a bit about the NCAA. Let's talk a bit about March Madness. What is the NCAA? Well, it's the sports regulatory body for student athletes. So it spans across over a thousand different schools in the U.S. um, among three different divisions. March Madness is the basketball tournament. It's also part of the NCAA. It's a single elimination tournament after the regular season is over. It has 68 teams in total. So towards the end of the regular season, the NCAA announces the teams and their seeds. And so those teams make it into the tournament and they make up the bracket that so many of us try to fill out. So we have this dynamic with the NCAA where they have student athletes and they also claim to have resources to support them. But what are some of the organization's internal policies? One of the most important ones is their amateurism policy, which basically dictates that student athletes can't be paid to play. The policy claims that a student athlete is limited to only 20 hours of physical activity a week. However, a lot of critics claim that this isn't true. Student athletes almost always exceed this number and can spend up to 50 to 60 hours a week in physical activity. So what's the real issue here? Is it about these student athletes getting paid or is it more of a systemic issue? We're seeing now in basketball that the system is expanding across the world and into the diaspora. In particular, with the NBA, we're seeing the creation of NBA Africa, which is a joint partnership between the NBA and the international basketball body called FIBA. So we're seeing how sports systems that are created here are being recreated in the African context, in the diaspora context. So that leads me to ask, you know, right now we see that there are a lot of systemic flaws within the NCAA and many of our sports today. With the diaspora, we have this dynamic where a lot of us really enjoy these sports And we recognize that the diaspora has played a huge contribution. And a lot of times, as David said, we've dominated the sports arena. But how do you reconcile the challenge between having systemic flaws in sports versus our own personal enjoyment of it? So the first question that I want to pose to you guys is, growing up as Black and part of the African diaspora, what were some of the first things that you learned or understood about sports? What was your relationship to sports as a child? And has it evolved? And then connected to sports in your own life, Do you ever feel like you were around just to fit someone else's agenda of what you should be in terms of sports? I'll pose that question off to you guys. Uh, Growing up, wow. Uh, I say growing up in America, uh, I grew up, well, I grew up in Kenya and America. So I have both contexts where I grew up in the African continent and grew up here in America. So I came here before my preteens. My childhood was in Kenya. So for me growing up, it was just soccer. Uh, I would just say sports was always around me. For for me, the first thing was soccer. Uh, I, I touched soccer when I was four years old. It was one thing I had in common with my friends. It's just I always had the love and the passion for the game. So for me, I, I learned to love soccer when I was such a young age because it brought me a sense of joy, peacefulness, and it separated me from my reality. As, men, as some of you might know, I mean, you two know, you guys are my, my good, my brothers. I grew up in a refugee camp. And so... What soccer did for me and separate me from my reality that I was in. It's just my world of being in a refugee camp, being in a, what you would call this open prison. You're in the refugee camp. You can't leave the refugee camp. You live there. You go to school there. Hospitals are there. And so your whole life is just is concentrated in the refugee camp. You can't travel outside the refugee camp because you don't have papers. You're a refugee. And so soccer, sports and soccer in general brought me that sense of joy and peacefulness to my life. And first, first time I, fe- I fell in love with soccer, I would say during the World Cup, 
watching the World Cup in uh, in 2002 and seeing the beautiful game. It's just, you know, seeing so many different countries, you know, in the World Cup being represented from African countries, you know, uh, South Americans, uh, the United States, European countries, Asian countries. That for me, it was just like, I was so intrigued by it, particularly for me, seeing the Brazilian team play. And it's just how they just had people that looked like me. I was just this little black boy, you know, seeing Ronaldinho, Ronaldo, Ravinho, you know, play the game to the absolute just beauty of, I would say, how African people play the game, you know, the celebration, the dance, the rhythm, you know, the, the flow, the laughter. It was just like, I was like, oh my God, these people are like me, you know, even though it was Brazil, but that's how me and my friends play the game, you know? Uh, it's just how we you, we dance and celebrate afterward. It was just like, this was so connected to my own culture, even though I was thousands of miles away from Brazil, for a say. Uh, but just seeing Black athletes on the global stage represent me was something, was just that brought me a sense of enjoy and belonging, even though I wasn't Brazilian myself, but I saw myself in them. That, that's, that's, that's what kind of sports meant and did for me. Yeah, thanks so much for that, Dow. Um, I think for me, and um, I know, Hanak, you haven't gone yet, but I, I know a little bit about your story. I think mine's is going to sound different. I I had an interesting, I had a love-hate relationship with sports. It was a bit toxic, a bit tumultuous. Um, I uh, grew up in the U.S., as our listeners probably know by now, um, Native Black American, whatever that means. <laughs> and um, I grew up in a pretty sports-involved family. My dad and my brother love sports. They're big basketball fans. We live in Los Angeles, so it was Lakers all the way, Kobe Nation, you know, but also um, my uncles love sports. My grandpa loves sports. Every holiday, there was a sport game on, whether it be Thanksgiving, whether it be Christmas. And you have to vary, like, uh, particularly for, like, Black families. And I feel like we have our roots in this, as you, as Dow kind of brings to light for me. Like, like our ideas and our love for sports have been, I believe, around since um, they stem from who we truly are as Africans. Um, but it's also in a way that I feel like is very gendered. And so you would have the men, you know, in the living room watching the sports and yelling and very emotional. And then you have like the women, the kitchen, like cooking or talking about life or something. And uh, I always found myself as a child feeling like I didn't fit fully into any room because I was like, I didn't enjoy being in the, in the, I didn't enjoy this. I just didn't enjoy the sports that much as a child. I think as I'm older, like I get the strategy behind it and the competition and there's things that excite me more about it. But I always felt like the hyper-masculine nature of sports just was really off-putting to me and um i think what it drew like what it drew out of people um i just didn't find really exciting and um my older brother was super big into basketball and so i was like i want to chart my kind of chart my own path i was into performing arts and i was really creative and um so sports i just it it was a non-factor to me um growing up and it felt like uh, the people who loved sports participated in sports were not nice to me. So I was like, you know, sports is associated with um, unkindness and um, being mean and bullying and stuff. And so I had a very kind of one track mind about sports, just was not interested in it. And my dad, actually, when I was in um, the end of my middle, the end of my elementary, beginning of my middle school life, he he made me sign up for football for a couple of years. My, someone that he worked with was um 
coaching a team and they were like David should be in football he needs to be in a sport you know he's a young man he's growing and um, my dad was like yeah and so he made me do football he had to force me I mean the entire way through he would um <laughs> he would bribe me with toys he'd be like if you go to this practice and if you win this game I'll buy you a, I'll buy you a toy and um I was like okay shoot you know I hated it but you know I had little incentives here and there and so um but I just never liked it and I've actually really um that experience is really formative for me because I think it helped me understand what do black communities what do black communities feel like are a rite of passage for black men and some black boys and some black girls, but really black boys. And um, it was like, how do I, sports has always been a way to make us feel accepted, give community, normalize us. And when you don't fit that mold and when you kind of go against that grain, there's a lot of resistance and tension. And so sports was a place where that played out in my life quite significantly. I ended up liking sports. I found out that I'm very competitive. I, you know, I feel like I'm naturally athletic, but the institution of sports, the socialization of sports for me as a black boy was not um, positive. And so, yeah. That was my experience. Has it changed my relationship? Sure. I will watch sports now. I still don't follow it heavily because I feel like there's so much context I've missed out on. But um, yeah, that's me. Thank you guys for those great answers. I think my answer is actually going to be a combination of both of yours. Growing up, I was a, a big sports fan, but I'd say that I definitely had a mixed experience in the sense of I was a big soccer fan. I enjoyed playing it and from a team setting, there were definitely moments where I felt like I was made fun of, um, moments where I wasn't good enough. I felt like I was definitely, like you said, David, around people that just weren't very nice. And growing up, you were in a lot of circumstances where a lot of kids would sort of make fun of you or kind of pick on you if you weren't as good at a sport. That being said, I was a big sports fan. Um, I'd say the biggest, the, the biggest turning point for me, and I've told you guys about it as well, was the World Cup. In 2006, the, that was the first World Cup that I saw. And I liked soccer at the time. I was, eight, I was eight years old. I was a soccer fan, but that was sort of when things really got me excited. I watched every single game in the World Cup. And just, it was a combination of my own interests in like learning about different cultures and geography and then seeing that play out on the sports field, especially in soccer. It was really interesting to me, seeing different countries play. And then as Dow was talking about, seeing countries like Brazil like dominate in certain games, seeing players dominate, players that look like us, and recognizing that countries outside of Africa have black populations. That, that was sort of my first intro into the diaspora. I didn't know the term back then, but that they were the diaspora, basically. Seeing Brazil, even Saudi Arabia, having teams full of black players, it was an interesting experience for me. And that's what got me really excited. I remember as a kid, that's what really got me wanting to play soccer more. Like I'd, I started buying like games for my PS2, play the World Cup game, uh, played soccer with friends. And so that's when I started to develop really positive experiences with the close friends that I had growing up that I still keep in contact with, getting to play soccer with them, um, playing basketball with them, people that I was close with, that was like a safe space for me to really play sports with them, to watch games with them, to talk about sports. So in a way, it was a there was definitely that positive experience that I was able to build up over time. And it was a common bond that I was able to share with a lot of kids growing up as well. So I think for me, it was definitely a mixed experience. Um, I enjoyed it, but at the same time, I did have those negative experiences where I was around people that kind of used it to assert their own dominance. Thank you guys for those great thoughts. I feel like there are a lot of similarities and differences as well. So we're going to continue on the conversation here and talk more about the NCAA. The NCAA is no stranger to controversy. I went into it a little bit, talked about the systemic issues they have with the student-athlete dynamic where students 
don't get paid, but they have these regulations that don't really get followed. So you're basically practicing, you're having some sort of physical activity for about three times as long as the actual limit that's stated by the policy that they have. So thinking about all of our different answers and connections to sports, what do you guys make of NCAA systemically along with their own actions? Given that sports from soccer to football to hockey all around the world is part of the part of African blood, part of African culture. In the case of professional sports, can we as African people, members of the diaspora, truly afford to not hate the player, but only the game? What do you guys think? I'm going to let somebody else answer first. <laughs> wow. Uh, I think it's a great question. Whew. I think I think we we as the African diaspora, we we, we cannot hate the player. We, we cannot hate the player because we are the player. Uh, most of us that play in the sports, uh, when we see that NCAA uh, or NBA or NFL, where it's just majority black athletes or N- WNBA, you know, we are the one playing these the sport and the reason is very different from everyone else. We're playing to get out of. I say black people play sports to make it. We play sports to try to succeed in the society that we're in. Uh, just because of the opportunities that are given to us are very limited. But sports is one one thing where the opportunities that are available to us. If you you have the talent, you will make it. You have the talent, you work hard, you'll make it. Now the game, the game in itself, we can hate because the game does not. It's not there to nurture us. It's not there to look out for us. It's not there to empower us. It's there to gain and profit off of our backs. And so that's very different from the player. The player is there because they're trying to pull their family and themselves out of generational poverty that has tormented uh, and haunted them forever, you know, since since they've been on this earth, you know. And so that's just my experience. Me and my friends have played sports in high school. Majority of them came from my background. And the reason they played sports was, yes, they were passionate, but they also wanted to make it for the sake of their families and themselves. The, the issue that I have, my thing with this is that there are a lot of players that come out of the NCAA, as an example, that succeed. But my other question is, is that because of chance, you know, there's talent that's there as well. But in addition to the talent, there's a level of luck that you have to have to be able to make it out of the system. So my main concern is that as a system, if these institutions aren't providing a real way for these student-athletes to have options, is it really helping or is it hurting? So not everyone is going to be a Steph Curry. Not everyone's going to be, um, you, know, you know, like a a success story. So let's say you're playing basketball, you're in the NCAA, you're a student athlete, D1 school, and you get injured. You get injured, and then after that, what happens? Let's say you can't go pro. If you can't go pro, what are your backup options? Have you been prepared? Have you been set up in a way where you can succeed outside of playing professional sports? And I know that varies from person to person, from athlete to athlete. But there are definitely a lot of cases where that isn't the case. And a lot of student athletes aren't left prepared to really deal with the repercussions of not being able to play professional sports because there wasn't another outlet provided to them or they weren't adequately invested in to the point where they could really succeed in another area outside of professional sports. So I do believe that we can still enjoy sports and we can still enjoy the success of these athletes. My main concern is definitely around 
the issue of like what's the backup if things don't work out for a certain athlete yeah um okay i hear what y'all are saying but listen we gotta just call a thing a thing okay the ncaa makes over a billion dollars per year from what is majority black athletes so statistics show from ncaa themselves that about a half around 49 percent of all ncaa athletes um are um black and that 60 percent of them are black particularly in basketball and that there's a strong correlation between the concentration or the the increase of black athletes in a certain ncaa sport and revenue generated in that sport you know like that is um that's just cold hard fact and when you have an industry you know a sports professional industry making a billion dollars a year and none of that money none of it goes to the players who are the ones who are engineering and um, producing the activity for the entire system. And you have majority of those players black. You have majority of those black players poor from disinvested communities, whether it be in the U.S., whether it be around the world, who are looking for an opportunity, a shot at life, as Dow mentioned, you know, as you mentioned, Hinnock. That is, to me, pure exploitation. And um, I don't, subscribe to the idea that we have to hate or like individualize um and you know demonize the players who are using that opportunity as a way to um produce upward mobility but i also don't stand here and say that i will automatically grant them my support and suspend my critique because um i think the consensus and the consciousness around the ncaa's um plunder and dispossession of black people and black bodies is like more commonly known today than it was 10 years ago like there's all kind of documentaries on it there's think pieces you know it's a part of conversation in the sports world as much as it is outside the sports world and so that controversy is there and um so it's not like folks can say oh you know i didn't really consider that like that's a that's a decision people make within their calculation to think like I'm going to become an NCAA. And if I have the talent and the drive and the opportunity, I can't confidently say that I wouldn't do it, you know, and um, like if I'm just being honest. But I think that that does make me involved in the problem. And um, I just feel like any institution that refuses to I mean, like this amateurism policy is absolutely bogus. You know, like you have, you have in 50 to 60 hours. I also think that that's underestimated. You got players putting in 80, 100 hours a week for just being stupid, for just being athletes, not to mention everything else that they have to do. And so it's like, um, and I just think about you're taking these athletes' faces, their likeness, you know, you're putting them on games. Like you are literally um, stealing the image. (laughs) You're stealing the image. Um, uh, of 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 majority black athletes especially in basketball around march madness and stuff like these are black personalities african personalities who are um who are driving this whole machine and they get nothing besides a education that's also being compromised because they're being told to not take their studies seriously and being put in fake classes and th- there's just a whole system of corruption behind it and so um i love my black players i love my african players you know keep going keep being strong keep being excellent but 
it's a problem that we can we we continue to sustain this system and there still hasn't been real change to it so yeah that's that's just how i'm feeling you know um kind of final question about the ncaa which is ncaa we're talking about college right we're talking about college basketball we're talking about um it happening at the collegiate level but there's also conversation that needs to happen about what are the roles of institutional sports you know at the fully professional level at the adult level at the non-school level and um we know or many of you may not know that um the NBA is beginning a second branch. Hanok mentioned this with the you mentioned this, right, Hanok? Yeah, so the NBA is working with the with um the international basketball governing body. It's called FIBA. It's like FIFA, okay. it's like FIFA, but it's basically the basketball version of FIFA. It's called FIBA. Right, right. Okay, yeah. So, exactly. Hanok, you mentioned it earlier. FIBA is is partnering with the NBA to build out an NBA Africa. And so we want to kind of, like, shift the conversation to that for this next discussion. Um, and thinking about also a lot of the things that we know about the NBA. The NBA is 78% black players um, with less than 2% black coaches and owners and um, lots of interesting things to unpack there, but also lots of opportunities that we see for black and African players more specifically in the most recent, um, I'll say years to really show up and show out. Um, But my question is transitioning into that. What do you guys think are the possibilities or maybe pitfalls of building out what is an NBA Africa with FIBA. And as the world really begins to take stock of elite, of a, I would say an elite league of African athletes in professional basketball, such as the Greek Freak, um, Joel Embiid, Bam Adebayo, folks like that, is this really, is this like another opportunity for institutional exploitation? Um, or is this like truly an opportunity to elevate untapped talent within the diaspora? Thank you, David. So before we get into that question, I just want to give our viewers some context into NBA Africa. So NBA Africa will consist of 12 teams from across the continent. The Basketball Africa League will involve six different national champions from the countries of Nigeria, Angola, Morocco, Egypt, Tunisia, and Senegal. So those countries will automatically, the champions from those countries will automatically qualify for the competition. And then the remaining six will have to come through international qualifiers later on in the year. Also, just to note, the NBA actually established an office in Africa in 2010. It held its first NBA Africa game in 2015. So games in 2017 and 2018 were actually played in South Africa and the crowds were sold out. There was just a lot of love and appreciation for the game. So it's something that we know will have a lot of impact and it's something that a lot of people on the continent are actually looking forward to. And just as a note, there were 13 African-born players on the rosters of NBA teams at the opening of the 2018 to 2019 season out of the 108 total international players. So that rises to actually about 40 if players with African parents are included. And according to the VP of NBA Africa, this league, NBA Africa, will be fully operated by the NBA. So there's just some facts for us while we go into our discussion. What y'all thinking? Come on. Let me know. Let me know. 
So there are a couple of sides to it, and I just want to point that out. The first side being there's a possibility that this could be a great opportunity for players to really be quote-unquote homebred. So instead of, well, this is basically a, a gateway to the NBA, but at the same time, it's a way for players that are based on the continent to really have a stable place to continue to grow in their skills, to really hone their craft as well. And the fact that there are NBA athletes or former athletes who are African or of African descent that are playing a role in building this out, I think it's encouraging from an institutional standpoint. That being said, I recognize that this is something that's going to be hands-on operated by the NBA. So that brings in the issue of what are the systems that we're going to bring in to the African context and what impact will that have? We're bringing in a sports system from the American context into Africa, um, which has a very different environment in terms of sports, in terms of the systems that we're dealing with. How will that play out? And in a, in a way, does that give agency to African athletes and Africans to really have a system that works best for them as well? I also agree with Hinnock that I want and I am hopeful that this will be a, an opportunity to begin a new narrative and to pioneer a new system of, of, of professional athletes that truly celebrate and not just celebrate for, for an act for, and, and word, and, but in action, the lives and, and of, of African people and respect African people to allow them to be operating at various points of leadership throughout this entire system, management, ownership, um, strategic direction, like continental Africans, African diaspora people need to be able to have real decision-making power like that itself is going to be critical to the fulfillment of um, uh, uh, an NBA Africa that is going to ultimately be for African people. That's my hope. What I really believe is going to be the reality <laughs> is not that. I think that this unfortunately will most likely end up after the initial waves of idealism subside and the money begins to take over. This will be another system in which um, mainly white, um, rich individuals who have pioneered a system of literally dispossessing black people and taking their bodies and making profit off of it. You know, like that's, that's a system that has been developed for centuries. And I feel like, unfortunately though, we, we wrap it in entertainment. That's what happens in our sports world. And it feels like bringing an NBA to Africa and doing that in an even more explicit way. is like so visceral to me and like so triggering to me. Cause it's like, it's so it feels so colonial <laughs> like it's kind of like what is the, what's the next what's the next iteration of stealing from black people can we do you know we steal their resources we steal their labor we steal their families we steal their their place of existence and um with something like nba africa if it's not stewarded and governed well we will continue to steal directly from the continent the talent and the sheer power and magnitude and abilities of african people african men and women and other folks and um that just it troubles me and nervous it makes me it unnerves me it concerns me and it feels like it feeds off of the same reality like 
Africans have nothing and like this is an opportunity and we're creating a real pipeline to give people who are talented a way out but it's like we're not addressing systems we're just creating another um talented tenth kind of um phenomenon where those who are talented are now even more beholden to those who give opportunities and just be and also putting Africans in charge uh, people on the continent charge doesn't mean that that's going to automatically fix the system without real scrutiny and investigation around these systems sociologically. So I also do want to insert that as well, um, because we're having people who have been institutionalized in this system, whether they're African, black or whatever, to be in charge of creating, a, reproducing a system. So how can we how can we be confident that they won't do that, as Hinox said? So I'm going to leave it there. As many of you know. I love sports. Uh, it's one thing, one of the hobbies I do on my free time. Uh, I follow sports, all of them, soccer, basketball, uh, baseball, football. I, I follow, I love sports. I'm just, that's just the, just, that's the passion in me for sport I have. And so when I first heard about NBA Africa, I jumped up. I literally jumped up. Uh, uh, the reason is, uh, Africa is the only continent that didn't, that doesn't have a basketball league until now. Uh, uh, and so talent, uh, uh, people who were playing basketball, uh, we see that with basketball and soccer uh, on the continent or football, as is known on the continent, leaving the continent, uh, looking for opportunities elsewhere, especially going toward Europe or finding their way to America somehow, some way. Uh, and that's a very dangerous journey, uh, especially crossing the Mediterranean Sea uh, on, you know, you know, on some time on a canoe, you know, trying to get to Europe in, in any way possible, uh, just because they have that love, that passion for sport. But because they, in most most people's mind, it's just like their thing is they want to lift themselves out of poverty. They want to give themselves a chance, an opportunity to showcase their talent. And so with NBA Africa, we won't see young people, especially young men, risking their lives to go to Europe uh, to try to find opportunities there in Europe because the opportunity is here. It exists in Africa where they'll stay in their countries uh, and develop that talent uh, through NBA Africa uh, where, you know, where they wouldn't have to go to Europe or come to America for their talent to be, quote unquote, discovered. Right. Uh, but showcase their talent on the continent. And so where you'll have, you know, scouts from Europe and Af and, and United States going to Africa or else coming from the West in general and seeing these players and the talent they have and be like, okay, you're talented. Thus, these players can start getting drafted or get signed to the NBA. Uh, and I think that's like any athlete goal is to make it to the best league possible. Uh and so that's that's my hope. Uh as so like you said, uh with NBA Africa being run by great African legends such as, you know, Dikemba Mutombo, you know, Akeem Olajuwon, you know, uh, you have Luol Deng. These are African players who have played in the NBA. Uh, two of them who are Hall of Famers, you know, uh, who have just represented Africa in such great light. Uh, I hope, I hope, my hope is that they do this uh, in a way that, you know, caters toward the need of their people, right? Uh, representing and empowering their people, uh, developing talent so that their people can can gain access to opportunities that they never had before. This is the first time for that. 
And so that's my hope. And so, but there is there is also parts to be skeptic, skeptic because the NBA is is a league that's it's there. You know, it's a private company that's there to make money, to make profit. You know, to grow the game. You grow the game in Africa, you make more profit. That's just the fact of it. And so, we hope. I mean, I hope this is not just to make the profits off the back of you know black people. You know, and forget uh, their needs. Uh, on the ground that's there to develop the game that's just it's much more comprehensive it's much more you know uh, acu- uh accommodating uh to the players and to africans in general uh and so that's my hope uh but i my personal opinion i think the league is going to be great for the continent because of the risks i mentioned uh and you know uh players will develop their games at home uh players will still uh, be with their families instead of making those dangerous journeys across the seas to go elsewhere. Okay. Yeah. Thank you all so much. Uh, okay. I am, I'm sitting with y'all's comments. I think there's a lot of great things that I pulled out from there. And um, I think this is a really good conversation discussion. So thank you, Dow. Thank you, Hinnock. Um, Before we turn the mic off for today, we want to introduce one more topic that we're going to do a quick teaser on because our response and our thoughts on this is going to be, um, they're going to be revealed in part two of this two-part episode that we're doing for you today um, on sports. And so moving into our next topic, very briefly, I want to talk to y'all about Giannis Antetokounmpo. Okay, I uh, I hope I'm saying his name absolutely correctly. I believe I am. He is also known as the Greek Freak. All right, he is um, Nigerian, Greece-born athlete. He's a professional NBA basketball player, and he is kind of dominating the field right now. He's dominating the sport, hence the name The Greek Freak, recently named as MVP player um, this this season. He, in February, was selected to um, be the captain of one of the all-star teams for the, you know, the big all-star games that happen every year. NBA, it's a huge deal. Um uh, and also for like a younger player in the field um, directly coming from um, Greece. But um, so like he's an international player. He's a migrant. He's been in the States for only about five years. Um, and then his family migrated from Greece, um, from Nigeria um, and dealt with um, a level of um, struggle and hardship there. So he kind of embodies, you know, this very typical story that we hear of like these incredible African athletes, like making it. And, um, but I want to quickly highlight. So during his all-star team, um, he did something quite uh, spectacular or at the very least um, eyebrow raising. He actually decided to um, highlight and create a team where there was a significant amount of African-born players, um, also folks who share his story, share parallel um, experiences on his team in a way that really brought public attention, um, in a way that was also very public of him to do it. Um, Specifically, two players that ended up on his team were Bam Adebayo um, and Pascal uh, Siakam. Am I saying that right, y'all? Pascal Siakam. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yes, Pascal Siakam, um, two Cameroonian players. And so it was the first time in NBA history that two Cameroonian players had been on played on the same team. And also um, just like there are other African um, players he had on this team. And he like was very vocal. And there's sound bites and clips of him talking about his decision to do this and to celebrate African folks. And um, even some things that he said that uh, I heard that uh, maybe ruffled the feathers of some um, African diaspora folks, particularly some African Americans, some Black Native Americans, around why was this this kind of fixation on only having your team full of African players, um, you know, in a field where there's so many African Americans, and is this an example of truly creating a, a um, truly representing an elite league of African-born um, athletes in the U.S., bringing a different kind of attention to the continent, or can this or would this be an example of maybe a further division or silo of our communities and um should athletes like Giannis the Greek freak other African-Americans other big African athletes should they walk into the league with an already a consciousness around like let's build up the diaspora and let's like break down those walls and build bridges and so um we're going to talk about that but guess what we're not going to give you our responses our very juicy illuminating you know enlightening amazing responses now we're going to table that for part two so if you want to hear what we have to say we also have other great conversation coming up outside of this conversation about the greek freak we want to talk about what does it mean to um be a professional athlete if you're from africa if you're from the diaspora if you're from the continent we're going to do some comparison we're going to do some contrasting we're also going to talk about things like nike puma and what their connection is with the diaspora is a real is it not all these great topics are going to be talked about in part two of this episode. You will not have to wait two weeks to access this episode. Will be the next part will be um, will be uploaded for you the following week. So we want you to stay tuned. We're gonna have a discussion board. Let's get into it, y'all. Let's 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 dig this out. Let's keep talking. So keep listening. Want to quickly say thank you to all of our listeners out there. Ubuntu does not work without you. It doesn't work without the conversation. It doesn't work without the connection. So if you're listening to this, you can take 30 seconds to share this with someone who has not heard about it and really continue to highlight us as we highlight the diaspora. So again, I am David. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Hinnock. Thank you, Dow. And everyone, have a great night or whatever you're doing. Peace and love. Peace and love only. Yeah, thank you guys. We really appreciate it. Have a good one. Hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Ubuntu Pod and on Facebook at The Ubuntu Podcast. Make sure to like, follow, and subscribe. You can listen to us on both Apple and Spotify as well. You can also follow me directly on Instagram at Henny Yilma, H-E-N-I-Y-I-L-M-A. Hey y'all, it's Dow. Don't forget to follow me on IG. So it's Dow underscore Dol Hey everyone, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at David J A Y Curtis with two S's. Thank you.